With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom and State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. Thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is the Gist of Freedom. You're listening to Leslie Gist and Mr. Michael Cord, attorney activist. Mr. Cord, are you on the line? I am on the line. Leslie, how are you tonight? Oh, listen, now that you're on the phone, I'm doing great. Could you just introduce yourself to the audience? You've been a regular on our show, and I'm grateful for that. Certainly, certainly. First of all, Leslie, do a great job with this show, informing the public and educating the public, and I'm happy to be a part of it. My name is, as you mentioned, Michael Cord. I'm an attorney from Philadelphia, but I always like to say that I am not a lawyer who happens to be a black man. Instead, I'm a black man who just happens to be a lawyer. And by the way, as you know, Leslie, I'm also the angriest black man in America. <laughs> right. But I think you're softening up because I saw some pictures of your godson on Facebook. <laughs> you know, it's funny that I don't have any children, but when I got this godson, it's amazing because, but don't tell anybody this, Leslie, I haven't softened softened up, but I have realized that there is a soft spot Somewhere in my heart, but fortunately, it's only for black children. Everybody else, I'm still the angriest black man in America. Okay, well, indeed you have the right to say that tonight. Uh, let's just recap and tell our audience what's going on in the news and, and in our world. And well, we and again, news. Leslie, thank you very much for having me on because I've been watching all of the news shows and listening to all the radio shows, and, you know, they do a relatively good job in trying to put the information out there, but it's only when there are shows like yours when you get people who are connected to the situation. In other words, when I talk about these injustices, I'm not talking like some Ivy League professor or reporter or columnist. I'm actually feeling it and living it because my people go through that every day. And that's one advantage you have. The other advantage you have with your show, Leslie, is that you give people like me a chance to do what Malcolm said. Malcolm always talked about making it plain. And when I see these lawyers on these TV shows and these reporters and columnists and journalists, they use this 
fancy legal jargon, and people are thoroughly confused and have no idea what's really going on. People get the basic news, but don't find out what's really going on until there are shows like yours, black media outlets that put the information out there. And i got to say this before I go into the specifics. That's why I love being a host of the radio courtroom here in Philadelphia. It's on 900 a.m., WURD, and the president of this station is a person who's really committed and connected to the community. And the founder and owner was Dr. Walter Lomax. His daughter, Sarah Lomax, is actually the CEO. And she's one of the few people, and he he's an ancestor now, but he, her father, is one of the few people that would let an angry black man like me get on the microphone and put the information out. So big shout-out to 900 AM WRD, and certainly big shout-out to you, Leslie, for allowing me to do that kind of thing. Now, when I say that oh. kind of thing, what, what exactly am I talking about? Well, Leslie, you asked the question, what's going on? Well, Mm -hmm. what's going on is what has been going on since 1619 when the Europeans enslaved the first 20 black folks here in America, starting out in Virginia. And people might say, well, Mike, isn't that hyperbole? Isn't that type kind of extreme? Well, to a certain extent it is because obviously the horrors of slavery make what we're going through now pale in comparison. What I always tell people is this, Leslie, we were in hell in 1619, and we're in hell today. Now, we're in a cooler part of hell than we were in 1619, but we're still in hell. Black people from 1619, when slavery officially began, up until 1865, when it supposedly ended, black people were going to, through the type of hell where white America said, you have no rights, and we're not going to respect anything you do. Well, in 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court and the Dred Scott decision said just that. The U.S. Supreme Court said the black man has no rights that the white man is bound to respect. And they should have changed it to say that black people have no rights that white America is bound to respect. That was way back in 1857. And one of the interesting things, Leslie, about that Dred Scott decision from 1857 is that it's one of the few blatantly racist decisions that has never been overturned by the Supreme Court. Now, people say, well, yeah, Mike, the Supreme Court never overturned the Dred Scott decision, but they didn't have to because you black folks got the 13th Amendment, you got the 14th Amendment, you got the 15th Amendment. That's true. But still, you look at Brown versus Board of Education, and and that case in 1954, that case actually overturned the Plessy versus Ferguson case from 1898. So many of the blatantly racist cases have been overturned later on by the U.S. Supreme Court decision is not one of them. And that's perfectly, that's the perfect segue into what we're talking about today. When that grand jury came back in the Michael Brown case, that grand jury said this black youngster has no right that white folks are bound to respect. When the grand jury came back in New York, they said this black man, Eric Garner, has no rights that white folks are bound to respect. People often talk, Leslie, about how we need to exercise our rights, and that's a great point. We do need to exercise our rights, but we got to concede that when the rights were created for Americans, they were never intended to be created for African Americans. So what America is doing today, whether it's 
Michael Brown, whether it's Eric Garner, or whether it's hundreds of other black victims of police brutality. People like Oscar Grant and Sean Bell and Amadou Diallo and Eleanor Bumpers and Dante Dawson, Ramarley Graham, Ezell Ford, so many others, the laws were never designed to protect us. So the American mm-hmm. legal system is actually doing what it intended to do from the very day. But there's still mm-hmm. things we can do about that. Let me talk specifically, Leslie, about what happened in the Michael Brown case. Well, we all know the history. We know the background. We know how he was shot and killed by a white police officer. We know he was unarmed. So most people have the basic information about that case. But what people don't have is what really happened in the grand jury proceeding. Well, I can tell those people that the fix was in from the very beginning. And when I say the fix was in from the very beginning, the prosecutor in St. Louis, Robert McCulloch, knew exactly what he was doing. And what I mean by that is this. He impaneled a grand jury. He didn't have to. Every prosecutor in each of the 50 states throughout the entire United States of America can prosecute you, Leslie, can prosecute me, Michael Cord, and can prosecute anybody in the United States simply by going into his or her office, sitting down at his or her desk, opening up, opening up his, his or her desk drawer, and pulling out a form called an information doc- document. That information document is a powerful tool for all prosecutors. And all Robert McCulloch had to do was pull out that information document. That's the legal term. It's called an information document. And simply write on it, I believe that Leslie Gist shot and killed Michael Brown. I believe that Michael Cord shot and killed Michael Brown. Therefore, I'm going to prosecute Leslie or Michael for the crime of murder and that prosecutor simply submits that information document to the judge, and then it's on. It's as simple as that. They didn't need a grand jury. So people say, well, what's the grand jury for if that's not the reason for it? Well, it's very simple. Grand juries are designed to investigate to help the prosecutor to prosecute. Let me repeat that. Grand juries exist for the sole purpose of investigating in order to assist the prosecutor in prosecuting. This is normally how it goes. They're often used in political corruption cases or organized crime cases or white-collar, multimillion-dollar fraud cases because in all those types of cases, what happens is if it's a political corruption case, you got a senator or a congressman who's basically untouchable because he was smart enough in his political corruption not to get his hands dirty. So he's not going to accept the bribe personally. He's going to have a middleman. So you don't have, as a prosecutor, the evidence to get that congressman. So what do you do? You impanel a grand jury, and you bring in that secretary. You bring in that office manager. You bring in that office office supervisor, and you say, hey, Madam Secretary or Madam Supervisor or Mr. Manager or whatever, we think you were involved in this corruption. What we're going to do now is to give you immunity. 
If you tell us everything you know about what the congressman did, about what the senator did, we'll give you immunity. So you build up a case by having the grand jury to get all that information from the little fish in order to get the big fish. Same thing in organized crime. You can't get Don Corleone for killing people, but you can get that street soldier who actually pulled the gun and killed the guy. That street soldier. And I have a soldier quick question. Did. Yeah, please, please. Yeah, okay. Um, I have, I have sort of. Let's start off with. I think the prosecutor attempted to recuse himself because um, you let me know if, if it's true. Um, his father was murdered by a black man. Leslie, great question. The answer is yes, his father was killed by a black man, but no, he did not attempt to recuse himself, and there were many lawyers throughout Missouri and throughout the country that were demanding that he recuse, and so people know what we're talking about. Recuse means when you remove or excuse yourself from the case because you either have bias or the appearance of bias. And because Robert McCulloch's father had been killed by a black man, and because Robert McCulloch never prosecuted a police officer, the lawyers in the community were asking him to recuse himself. He refused to do so. Wonderful. And you gave us an excellent um, definition of a grand jury and why one would need one. And in this case, the one in New York with um, Eric Garner, it mm-hmm. was clear cut. He didn't need the middleman to come in and testify as you explained. Go ahead. Yes. Leslie, you hit it right in the head. I mean, I would argue that it was clear cut in the Missouri case of Michael Brown. I'll explain that later. But it was even clearer in Eric Garner's case because you could see the video. You could see what went on. Leslie, let me just make this one quick point before I hear your Mm follow-up. I was explaining Mm -hmm. how a prosecutor can simply prosecute by pulling out the information form, filling it out, and let it begin. That's all he had to do. But even if he was going to use the grand jury, people need to understand that a grand jury is not special because of the word grand. There's two (laughs) types of juries. There's a petite jury, also known as a regular jury. That's the trial jury. Twelve jurors and two alternates find you guilty or not guilty. That's called a petite or small jury, also known as a regular jury. What's the grand jury? Grand jury is only called grand because it has more members. A regular jury has only 12. A grand jury usually has anywhere from 15 to 23. I'm an attorney from Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. We have 23 in the grand jury. The weird thing about Missouri is that they have 12 jurors in the regular jury and also only 12 jurors in the grand jury, which is very, very weird. And I wanted to get into some more details about both the cases, but I certainly want to hear your follow-up questions. Oh, no, those were the two questions I had. Okay, great. And if you have any others, Leslie, as you know, because you've been knowing me for a while, just yell and scream, because when I get on that soapbox, I can't stop. So you've got to pull me off by yelling and screaming. Now, this is the thing. Grand juries are only called grand because they have more members than the regular or petite jury. Having said that, what does a grand jury do and what does a grand jury not do? Well, the first question is what does a grand jury not do? A grand jury does not find you guilty, does not find you not guilty. That's not the role of a grand jury. Instead, 
a grand jury can either be an investigating grand jury or an indicting grand jury. And by that, investigating grand juries are what Pennsylvania has. The only thing they can do in Pennsylvania, those 23 grand jurors, is to subpoena witnesses, build up the case for the prosecution, and turn that over to the prosecutor. They can't indict. But in most states, a grand jury can do both. They can investigate and they can decide whether there is a true bill or no bill. A true bill means the person is indicted. A no bill means the person is not indicted. What does indicted mean? Even though Robert McCullough in the Missouri case could have gone through that information process, by going through the grand jury proceeding, he still should have been able to get an indictment because an indictment doesn't mean that that the shooter, Officer Darren Wilson, is guilty. All it means is there's probable cause to believe that a crime might have been committed. That's kind of technical stuff. Let me break it down like Brother Malcolm X used to say and make it plain. When a grand jury indicts you, a grand jury is simply saying that, hey, Mike, hey, Leslie, somebody said that you committed a crime. And the evidence seems to support that because somebody said that Leslie had a gun and somebody said the victim did not have a gun. Somebody said that Leslie shot the person. Somebody else said that the person who was shot never got a chance to fire back because he didn't have a gun. And somebody else said that the guy who was shot had his hands up. Now, we don't know if any of that is true, but that's the evidence we got as a grand jury. So what we're saying is that there is probable cause to believe that a crime might have been committed. So we're going to indict Leslie. We're going to indict Michael Cord. We're going to indict Officer Dan Wilson. And if the officer or Michael or Leslie has a good defense, let them put that in their pocket and wait until the trial comes along and bring up that defense. Right now, as a grand jury, we're not here to decide whether they're guilty. We're only here to decide whether there's enough evidence to take it to trial. And in this case, they had they had enough evidence to find this cop guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but they didn't need that. All they needed was what we lawyers call probable cause, which means a reasonable belief to conclude that somebody might have committed a crime. That's why you heard that old saying that came from a New York judge a couple decades ago, Judge Walker. And Judge Walker said, prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. And as funny as that sounds, it's true. Why? Because a defendant cannot have his lawyer present in court. And a defendant cannot have his defense accepted at a grand jury proceeding. In other words, Mm. the grand jury proceeding is 100% exclusively the prosecutor's show. I've gone to grand jury proceedings. Well, let me rephrase that. I can only go to the front door of the grand jury proceeding. I walk my client to the front door, and I say, Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, the law says I cannot be in the grand jury room with you. I can only walk you to the door, and then you go in. And if they start to ask you some questions that you feel uncomfortable with, you can either assert your Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, or you say, I need a break. Let me go out in the hall and talk to my lawyer. 
So if there are no defense lawyers permitted in the grand jury proceedings, how is it that the grand jury in the Missouri case, and I'm going to go to the New York case with Eric Garner in just a second, how in the world did the grand jury in Missouri know about Officer Dan Wilson's self-defense argument? Well, they knew about it because of told them. That's something mm. that never happens. Prosecutors never tell grand juries about a defense. And it's nothing illegal about that. It's nothing unethical because the defendant is not going to be found guilty by the grand jury. He's simply going to have his case scheduled for trial if he's indicted. But I've got to tell you, Robert McCulloch, the prosecutor, did a better job at defending Officer Dan Wilson than Johnny Cochran ever could have, and that just should not have happened. In addition, in terms of what the prosecutor, Robert McCullough, did, on the first day, first or second day of the grand jury proceeding, he read to the grand jury through his assistance and provided those grand jurors with a copy of Missouri law. And Missouri law says that a police officer is legally permitted to shoot a fleeing felon. So if Michael Brown got into a fight with a police officer, that would be a felony. And if Michael Brown was running from the cop and the cop shot him, that would be legal under Missouri law. And the prosecutor, Robert McCulloch, and his assistant passed out copies of that Missouri law to the grand jurors. But, Leslie, there's a problem. That law Uh does not exist. In 1985, the U.S. Supreme Court, and when the U.S. Supreme Court speaks, every state must comply. And the last time I checked, Missouri is a state in the United States. In 1985, in the case of Tennessee versus Garner, the U.S. Supreme Court said a cop is not permitted to shoot a fleeing felon unless that fleeing felon is attacking someone or trying to take somebody hostage. But if that felon is simply just running away, you may not shoot him. Well, you might say to me, Leslie, you might say to me, well, Mike, if that's true, and that's what the U.S. Supreme Court said in its 1985 Tennessee versus Garner case, then how could Robert McCulloch give the grand jury false and erroneous and lying information. Well, two or three days before the grand jury announced its decision, all of a sudden Robert McCulloch comes back to them and says, oh, grand jury, remember when this case first started and I told you that Missouri law allows cops to shoot fleeing felons and I gave you copies of that law? My bad. I made a little mistake. I forgot about that 1985 case. And by the way, that 1985 case involved a 15-year-old black kid, an eighth grader, who had broken into a neighbor's house, stole $10 from that neighbor's pocketbook, ran out the back door, was climbing over the fence. The cops arrived and shot him in his back. And the family of the victim, the 15-year-old eighth-grade boy who was shot in the back by the cop, tried to sue the Tennessee Police Department And initially, they were saying, hey, you can't sue the cops because the law allows you to shoot them in the back. But the Supreme Court said, no, it doesn't. So that 1985 case made it clear that you cannot shoot a fleeing felon. If all he's doing is running away, then you can't shoot him. You certainly can't shoot him if he's surrendering. 
So Robert McCulloch mm. lied to the grand jury through his assistant at the beginning of the grand jury proceeding and then tried to clean it up a few days before it ended. That's absolutely mm. outrageous and absolutely unethical. In fact, one of the local news stations, one of the national news stations, interviewed the attorney general for the state of Missouri, who is actually the boss of Robert McCulloch. Attorney general said, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, we did kind of mess up on that. We should not have told the grand jury that. We shouldn't have given them that law, and we shouldn't have set it up that way. And all I can say is that we're sorry. What do you mean you're sorry? The other thing, Leslie, I failed to mention is that just like Robert McCulloch didn't even need to go through a grand jury, he could have simply used that information docu- document. People would be surprised also to know that a grand jury's decision is a mere recommendation. It's not law. So Robert McCulloch could have gotten this decision by the grand jury and rejected it and gone to another grand jury. So people are thinking that the case is over. Legally, it's not over. Robert McCulloch could get a second grand jury to look at the case again, and he can do it right and lawful this time, or he can forget about the grand jury altogether and simply submit the information form. But I have a quick question for you. Yeah, please. We have some calls on the line. Do you want to take them now or do you want to take them yeah. later? Let me spend two minutes wrapping this up and I'll be happy to take okay. their calls. I want to answer okay. your question. So this is what could happen. It's not over. The people and the public should pressure Robert McCulloch to either impanel another grand jury because he legally can or, even better, have him forget about the grand jury fill out the information form, and prosecute this cop for murder. In addition, when Robert McCulloch allowed Officer Darren Wilson to present his self-defense argument, that's totally irrelevant. Prosecutors never allow that at preliminary hearings or at grand jury proceedings. This was a case that should have involved first-degree murder or second-degree murder or at least manslaughter or something called armed criminal action. And just quickly in the last minute before we hear the callers, let me give a one-minute summary on Eric Garner. Eric Garner's case is even stronger than Michael Brown because you see it right there on video. And what the prosecutor in that case, in that situation, it was a Staten Island grand jury. And the prosecutor was a guy by the name of Daniel Donovan. And Daniel Donovan only submitted to the jury the grand jury, two charges. One was manslaughter and the other was criminally negligent homicide. But that prosecutor never submitted to the grand jury the charge of reckless endangerment. All the charges should have applied, manslaughter, criminal negligent homicide, and reckless endangerment. Reckless endangerment would have been so easy to prove because you can show what's going on. There's also the charge of second-degree murder. What's second-degree murder? That means when you are recklessly indifferent to human life and cause somebody's death. What does that mean? You take a stick and you put it around the person's neck and you choke them till they die. Even if you didn't intend it as a first-degree murder, that's certainly second-degree murder, New York statutory law specifically. Section 125.25 clearly says that if you engage in reckless action leading to somebody's death, that's second-degree murder for which you face 15 to 25 years. So all the stuff I told you, Leslie, about the Missouri grand jury, about the Staten Island grand jury, 
I can wrap it up in one sentence by saying, 1857, Dred Scott, black folks have no rights that white folks are bound to respect, but there are ways we can get those rights. I'll have some happy to answer any questions. Okay. And then I have some questions for you as well. So we have, uh, we'll start off with area code 201. If you want to say something, your line is open. The Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce. Can you hear us? Uh, Area code 201, we hear your radio. If you want to say something, you can, and we'll move on to the next call. Culture-related issues. Okay. And we must understand that Eric Okay. We'll move on to 215. Are you ready? You're on the line. 215-200. Mr. Court, I think we have a lot of shy people. Yeah, in fact, the first person from the 202, it sounded like he had bad reception on the cell phone. I hope that person can call back so I can answer the question. And the next one, which was the 215 area code, I didn't hear anything. So maybe the person mm-hmm. is ready to talk now. Okay. 732, are you ready? 732? 215? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear Loud and clear, loud and clear, yes. Okay. Hey, uh, uh, Brother Michael X, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for calling in. How are you tonight? <laughs> yes, sir, I'm good. I'm a first-time caller. I wanted to know, uh, is it possible to kick off a uh, class-action lawsuit against uh, the police department? Excellent question. The answer is yes, but it depends. One, class-action means that all the plaintiffs, which means the victims have to be similarly situated. That's the legal term, similarly situated. So all the plaintiffs have to be people who are either family members of folks murdered by cops or people themselves who have been beaten and assaulted. Once you've got all those people, 50 people, 500 people, 5,000 people, and they're all similarly situated, those are the plaintiffs. That's the plaintiff class action group. Now you got to go after one particular type of defendant, whether that defendant is the Philadelphia Police Department or the Ferguson Police Department or the Staten Island Police Department. So, one, you need a group of people who are similarly situated who have been victimized by the same defendant. Now, you, you have to do it pretty much state by state or county by county or city by city because you can only do it on the federal level with a federal defendant if the defendant, for example, was the FBI or the Secret Service or the CIA. But when we talk about police brutality, we're pretty much talking about local police departments. So there would have to be a number of class actions throughout the country for each particular police department. Because think about it. I live in Philly. If I was beaten up by the Frank Rizzo type of cops here in Philly, I could only sue them. I can't sue the people in Ferguson, Missouri, because I haven't been victimized by them. So to answer your question, which is a great question, yes, there can be class actions, but there would have to be a lot of them across the country by people victimized by the same defendant, by the same Ferguson Police Department, by the same Staten Island Police Department. So it would have to go all across the country, and that would be a couple hundred at least. It can be done, and it should be done. 
Mm-hmm. All right, so let's go to um, 215-848. You're on the line, 215-848? No? Okay. Let's try 201-838. Hello, 201 838. Yeah, Leslie, I can hear a lot of feedback. I guess they're yeah, having gonna... trouble with their cell phone as well. Yes, yes. Well, I have a question. Um, the gentleman asked about uh, a class action suit. What about yes. uh, suing, not just suing them as a class action suit, but when we have this proof that um, in the New York case, the officer that uh, choke uh, that held um, Garner in that chokehold that eventually led to his death. Yeah. He was sued three times previously. Mm-hmm. Okay. What can be done as far as this class action suit? And can you know can the family bankrupt not only the police department but also the police union? The answer is the answer is basically yes, and when I say basically yes, what I mean by this. Let's say, for example, Leslie, you are on a bus in Dallas, Texas, so you're on the Dallas uh, rapid transit system, and Michael Cord is on a bus in Philadelphia, and we have something called mm-hmm. SEPTA transit system. Well, if mm-hmm. that bus driver in your case in Dallas, for example, is driving recklessly in and drives the bus into a wall, and he crashes it, and he injures you and 50 other people on the bus. Well, you don't sue that bus driver. You sue the person allowing that bus driver to be in that situation. So you would sue the Dallas Mass Transit Authority. I would sue the SEPTA Transit Authority. So you go after the company. You go after the the entity that puts the person in the position. There's a couple reasons why you do that. You just gave a good example about the cop from Staten Island who had other complaints. Well, if he had other complaints against him for police misconduct, that means the police department knew about it. That means the city knew about it. And if the police department and the city knew about it, but they allowed him to continue to be a brutal cop, just like that city bus company, they knew that bus driver was drunk. They knew that he was reckless, but they continued to put him behind the wheel. You don't go after the cop individually. You don't go after the bus driver individually. You go after the entity that made it possible from a legal standpoint. And also from a financial standpoint, you want to go after the deep pockets. That bus driver mm-hmm. might make thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year. That's not going to be anything compared to the millions that you need to compensate yourself. Even Mm -hmm. though it works like that, and it does, we lawyers go after the entity, the deep pocket entity, because those are the ones that are ultimately responsible, and those are the ones that can actually pay the judgment. I suggest Mm -hmm. that not only do we do what we as lawyers have been doing, going after the agency that allows these people to work for them, but I'm saying go after the cop as well, because even if I sue that officer involved in the murder of Eric Garner. In that case, that police officer was Daniel Pantaleo. I can sue Daniel Pantaleo, and because of how the law generally works, I'd be suing the police department in the city. Well, I could win a billion dollars, 
But that billion dollars comes from the taxpayers. That money doesn't come from that cop. The system ought to be set up so that when you sue, the cop has to pay a percentage of it, like maybe 50 to 75% or 100% of his salary, in addition to the city and the agency responsible for his employment. So, yeah, you can go after that cop, and you can go after the police union, and you can go after the state, but the first thing you have to show is who's liable, who's responsible. That cop is liable. That cop is responsible. The police department that hired him and kept him on duty is responsible. The city that controls the police department is responsible. And as much as I despise the police unions, I can't say that they're responsible because they don't hire these people. It's the city that hires these people. The police unions support them but don't really hire them. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, now let's talk about solutions. Okay. One thing that I, I, I'm i an advocate for is police residency requirements. Okay. I just think that having these types of officers in our community that don't live in a community, you know, it's just un, it's, it's just un, unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And I um, think it, it would make a difference. Great point. That whole notion of police residency is cool because it involves getting people from the community to police the community. Theoretically, Leslie, that's a good concept, but I've got to tell you, and I'm embarrassed to say this publicly on my radio show on WRD, and I'm embarrassed to say it on your uh, internet blog talk radio show because you have a primarily black audience and I have a primarily black audience. But I've got to tell you, Leslie, some of the worst cops are black cops. So even if you've got black cops from the community, for whatever reason, those cops turn blue instead of remaining black when they put on that uniform. They protect the system. They support the system. They remind me of what the so-called slave master used to do during slavery. Many of the overseers that whipped the enslaved people in the plantation weren't white. They were black. The slave master, so-called slave master, would get a black person, give him the whip, and order him to whip the other people, and that person would do that gleefully often. And that's what we have today with black cops. KRS-One has a song from the 80s, and I encourage people to go listen, just just YouTube it, Google it. KRS-One is called Black Cop, and he breaks it down how these black cops in many ways are worse than white cops. Why? Because they want to prove to these white cops that these black cops are not like these criminal thugs and these criminal animals, that we as black cops, we're different from them. And I'm going to show you, white fellow police officer, that I'm different because I'm going to beat them. I'm going to stomp them. I'm going to shoot them. So your solution about cops being from the community, the police residency, that's a good Mm -hmm. start, but that's Mm -hmm. only going to be one of many approaches. Let me just quickly Mm -hmm. mention, you others before we get to some other calls if we have them. Um, mm-hmm. I used to be a strong proponent of body cameras where the cops on the scene got to have body cameras so we can see what went on. I still support it, but I'm not as enthusiastic as I used to be. Why? Because it was essentially a body camera in the Eric Garner case. We saw everything, but still it didn't matter. So if people think that body cameras are going to be the be-all and end-all, the Rodney King case showed us that that's not true. You got the camera showing the whole beating. 
the Eric Garner. You got the whole choking and killing. But those cameras in the Rodney King case didn't make a difference. The camera in the Eric Garner case didn't make a difference. I do want it, and I support it, but I'm not as enthusiastic as I used to be about it. So we got the police residency, good idea. Body cameras, good idea. But not a be-all and end-all. The ones I really like, people haven't been talking about, and it's this. You got to have a thorough psychological evaluation while you're applying for the police job. You got to have a thorough psychological evaluation while you're in the police academy. You got to have a thorough, regular, ongoing psychological evaluation while you're a police officer. Why? Because that's one of the few duties in American history where you literally have a license to kill. If you're going to give people a license to kill, you've got to make sure that they don't have some issues going on. And I've got to tell you, in my limited study, Leslie, many cops, not all of them, but many were bullied in school. And because they were bullied in school, now it's payback time. Now they can pay back all the people who used to take their lunch money and push them around in school because now they're police officers. That's why they have what I call this Napoleonic concept or, 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 or attitude that when you see these cops, if the cops want to give me a ticket for speeding, just give me the damn ticket. You ain't got to come off like you're some god or some four-star general. Just give me a ticket. Why do you have to have this belligerence about you? Why do you have to have this arrogance about you? It's because something went on in junior high school, in high school, in their life. That's when they check out what's going on with their spouses. You know that police officers, as a profession, have the highest rate of spousal abuse than any profession in America. What's up with that? The suicide mm-hmm. rate is one of the highest. So there's something going on with people who have a license to kill. That's why you've got to have a thorough psychological evaluation when they apply, a thorough psychological evaluation within the police academy, and a thorough psychological evaluation ongoing once every couple years while they're police officers. That's the solution. Another solution is there should be community evaluation. In other words, once you become a cop, you can only keep your job based on recommendations from your police supervisor and recommendations from the community. If they got, like, NAACP chapters and others, they should be actively involved. You were saying something, Leslie? Uh, we have a few more callers on the line. You want to certainly? Take- I got some more okay. solutions, but I want to hear from the callers. Okay. Two one five four three two. You're on the line. Yes. Uh, good evening. Uh, the one question I have: I live in Philadelphia. One question I have that I've never really understood, and maybe uh, Michael can explain it. Um, the police officers—they're paid by taxpayers' money. Yes. What or how does what is the fraternal order of police? Great question. The fraternal order of police is nothing but the police union. They're simply other police officers that were created. The organization was created to protect the rights of cops. Just like if you work at a factory, you want to have a union at that factory so the employer can't violate your right as a worker. That's what the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, are there for in New York. They call them the Benevolent Society. But to answer your question, it's simply the police union designed to protect the rights of police workers. That's all. 
Okay, because it seems like being like under the umbrella of being in the fraternal order of police is like a, a brotherhood, and that's yeah. where they build this blue wall where, you know, you know, once you put on the uniform, regardless of what happens, we're all brothers, so we don't, you know, go I against each you. other. You're right. It's like a fraternity, and not just a fraternity, when you got black cops who buy into that, Latino cops who buy into that, Asian cops who buy into that, gay cops who buy into that, so they become a part of that fraternity. But the other thing is this. Not only is it a, a union, not only is it a fraternity, it's also a powerful political lobby so that when city council people run for office or mayoral candidates run for office, that union votes in the block. If they got, for example, in Philadelphia, there's nearly 7,000 cops in Philadelphia. So now that union got a block of 7,000 votes, and the mayor knows that if he don't get that 7,000 votes and the husbands and wives of those 7,000, the brothers and sisters and the friends, so they got political power and they got a budget. Those cops got to pay union dues. So now they got money to vote you into office or vote you out of office. So it's a fraternity and it's a powerful political lobby. But it's only supposed to be a union, but it's much more powerful than that. Oh, so that's why we never have someone running for office who says they that as part of their format for the community that they will yep. make sure yep. that the police function correctly in their that's, in our community. That's exactly right because they know on the one hand, if they support the cops, they got those seven thousand votes times three or four with the family members and friends of those cops. That's about twenty twenty five thousand votes right there. But if they if if you are beaten up by the cops, so I'm beaten up by the cops, you and I don't have a union like that. We might have 10, 15, 20, maybe 100 people that can support us. So now that elected official, that candidate, he's saying, hmm, am I going to support Michael Court, who only got 100 votes against me, or am I going to support the FOP that got 25,000 votes? It's as simple as that. But if the people like you and me come together, if the cops got 20,000 votes, you and I got 250,000 votes. We just got to come together. Wow. Okay, let's try 201838. Hello. Yes, Hello, we can, can hear you loud and clear. Can you hear me? Yes, I'm calling from North Jersey, and I basically want to say two things. Tony Cross basically spoke about black cops uh, kind of being the worst. In the Rodney King beating, black cops stood there and did absolutely nothing on stopping the yeah. white cops from beating him. And I was appalled because I happened to see Rodney King before he died when he came to the Schaumburg. And he basically spoke about that whole incident where he sued them. He lost the judgment, but he sued them anyway. And he was appalled also because they stood there and did absolutely nothing to try to help him. Yep. Yep. And not only that, and I'm glad you raised that, people would, surprise, would be surprised that, did you know that the cops, have no legal obligation to stop crime, whether it's crime being done by a street thug or crime being done by a fellow police officer. People but if a fellow police that, officer is doing something wrong, they can't step in and, and shut it down? The answer is yes. Not only can they, they should. But there have been cases where people have sued the cops because they called the cops to come to their house to help them because they were being attacked and the cops didn't come and they sued the cops. But the courts have said 
As crazy as it sounds, the cops have no legal obligation to stop crime. I'm just telling you what the law says to show you how crazy the law is. So my thing to you, when those black cops stand around and watch those white cops beat the slop out of people, those black cops know that they're not going to get in any legal trouble for not stepping in to stop the beating or by not stepping in to arrest the fellow cop. Now, i got to be clear. That cop, because there was a case, I believe, in California where a woman was being shot at by her ex-boyfriend, and she was able to drive a half a block away. Guy down the street, he's shooting at me. You know, the cop said, I'm busy, and kept it moving. Now, the cop did get fired, but he can't be charged with the crime. Can you believe that? Mm, that's unbelievable. Only because I think that a lot of the black cops are afraid to sometimes step in because they're afraid that the white cops are going to come back at them. Just had a case basically where a white cop shot a black cop. I don't know basically all the particulars. Well, it was actually two cases. One was in New York. I was getting yep. off work, and they mistaken him. They thought was some yep. kind of perpetrator. He ended up being New a York. police officer. Yes, and so I really feel that they are afraid, and if they step in, they got to basically you know deal with the white cop coming against them while they're out on patrol. And you're probably right, but still, black people got to defend black people. They got to protect black people. What if the black folks who worked in the big house during slavery, what if they said, I ain't going to help those black people out in the plantation, that ain't got nothing to do with me, or what if the black people were fortunate enough to buy their freedom? What if they yeah. said, well, I ain't no slave no more, I'm not going to get involved in that, All black people are the same in the eyes of the American legal system. Therefore, whether you're a black cop or a black man or a black woman or black whatever, you've got to help black people, and that's what black cops should do. If they talk that nonsense about they're scared, if you're scared, go to church. Don't become a cop. Exactly. My second question was in reference to the grand jury. Because basically I was listening to the talk radio and one of the ladies, one of the hosts basically spoke about how the grand jury are listening to multiple cases. So my point is, how are they listening to multiple cases? Why not basically set up a special grand jury to listen only to that case and render the decision? And I think that's basically what's happening. They're coming in and listening to, say, five or six cases. They may basically listen to this case, put that aside, listen to another case, put that aside. Is that one of the reasons why they're not coming in and sometimes making a fair um, decision on these verdicts? I mean, I, I get it, but, is, you know, she was basically trying to make, you know, saying, well, you know, it's because they're listening to multiple cases. No, these people just are not trying to indict these police officers as far as I'm concerned. A good question. Whether it's the Missouri case where you had the grand jurors there or the Staten Island case, I blame the grand jury for not indicting, but in the list of priorities, those grand jurors at the bottom, I blame the police, I blame the prosecutor, I blame the judges, I blame the system, I blame all that person at the bottom. The last people I blame is the grand jury. Why? Because the grand jury is really like a blank slate. First of all, they don't know the law. They're taken off the street just like regular jurors are, and they can only go by what the prosecutor tells them. So if the prosecutor tells them, for example, in Missouri, that a cop can shoot a fleeing felon, then what's the grand jury going to do? Now, now in in the Missouri case, there were 12 grand jurors, nine black, and I'm sorry, nine white and three black. Mm -hmm. 
they haven't broken it down yet, but the way the law in Missouri works is this. They only needed nine of those 12 for an indictment, but we don't know the breakdown. We don't know if they only got nine or if they got 10, 11, 12. We also don't know, get nine, were the three blacks part of that? We don't know. So even though I blame the grand jurors, they're at the bottom of my blame list. First and foremost is the prosecutor, because as I told Leslie at the beginning of the show, a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. So if that prosecutor had walked into that grand jury room in Missouri and said, Officer Dan Wilson had a gun, he fired six or seven shots, he hit a child, he killed the child, and the child was unarmed, and then the prosecutor says, I rest my case, I want an indictment on murder. That would have been the end of it. He could have done that in five minutes. But he had all these long, drawn-out proceedings, 25 separate days of grand jury hearings, 70 hours of testimony, 60 witnesses, three medical examiners. It, it, just, it just confused the grand jurors. Yeah, but look at Trayvon Martin, Stacey, where one of the jurors, her husband, was an attorney, and I believe that, you know, they should have been brought up some kind of charges because I think he was the one that was feeding her information, and, and the jury was tainted. Because some well, of the that, that's a little they... different, and we got to go to another caller, but I appreciate okay. the questions and comments. But in the Trayvon Martin case, that was a little different because that was a regular jury. That was a trial jury. It okay. was up to them to hear the witnesses and decide guilty or not guilty, which is completely different from the grand jury. All the grand jury does is decide whether there should be a trial or should not be a trial. Okay, not a problem. Thank you for your insight. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you for the call. We appreciate that. Okay. Okay, we're going to try one last caller, and then we're going to uh, have you give us some closing remarks. Sure. Okay, we're going to go back to um, the lines are open, 215, fast four digits, eight, three, eight, seven, three, seven. Do you have anything, any questions? Okay. All right. Seems as though they don't. Last question for me before you um, close out the show, Mr. Port. Is it possible that these prosecutors can be um, indicted themselves for prosecutor um, misconduct? I'm having a hard time pronouncing that word. I certainly understand what you're talking about. It's called prosecutorial misconduct. And unfortunately... These prosecutors have what's known as sovereign immunity. In other words, most prosecutors, just like most judges, cannot be charged with a crime in situations like this unless it's overly egregious. Good example, there was a case in California where a prosecutor in a death penalty case had evidence showing that the defendant was completely innocent and did not commit the crime. The prosecutor had that. He hid that information, and when the defense attorneys were trying to ask about it, he lied and said there was no such information. After this guy had spent 10, 15, 20 years on death row, some clerk found this old file in the old courthouse and found the paperwork. That prosecutor which is the only one I've ever heard of, Leslie, in American history, was charged with a crime. But as long as a prosecutor can say, hey, this was just my strategy, 
or this was just my approach, as long as they have a little bit of cover, they will not be charged with a crime. It has to be something as blatant as what that California prosecutor did when he had evidence from an eyewitness that the guy didn't do it, and he hid that evidence and lied to the defense attorney. If they do something like that, you can go after them. But that's talking about a crime. Even if you don't have enough evidence for a crime, the term you use, prosecutorial immunity, you can go after prosecutors based on ethical violations. When we become lawyers, defense attorneys, civil attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, we have to take an oath to uphold the Constitution and standards of professional conduct. The American Bar Association has something called standards of professional conduct, which determine what's good and what's bad about what we do. And one of the first rules, Leslie, is that we must show complete candor to the court. What does complete candor to the court mean? It means you cannot lie as a lawyer, you cannot lie to the judge, and you cannot lie to the jury. In addition, you can't mislead the judge. You can't mislead the jury. So when Robert McCulloch in Missouri, St. Louis in particular, told the jury that a cop can shoot a fleeing felon, he lied to the jury. He misled the jury so we can try to get him sanctioned to take away his law license. In Staten Island, when the prosecutor, Daniel Donovan, for whatever reason, never included the charge of reckless endangerment along with the manslaughter charge, along with the criminal negligent homicide charge, there's no legal basis for not including that reckless endangerment charge. We could, the public through some local attorneys, file the same complaint regarding the violation of the American Bar Association standards of professional conduct, file those charges against the St. Louis prosecutor, Robert McCulloch, the Staten Island prosecutor, Daniel Donovan, to at least take away their law license if we can't throw them in jail. Wow. Okay. Now, what can the federal uh, government do, the Justice Department, the Department of Justice? Great, great question. They can do a lot, and they can do only a little. What do I mean by that? They can file criminal civil rights charges and you can be placed in jail for a long time, which means that New York cop, Daniel Pataleo, and that Ferguson cop, um, Darren Wilson, if they're prosecuted by the feds and convicted, they could spend a very long time in prison. But it's almost impossible to get a conviction on federal charges in these kind of cases. Why? Because you not only have to show that these cops murdered somebody, you got to show, and this is absolutely required, that the murder was motivated by blatant racism. It's like these laws that were passed, these federal prosecutions, civil rights, they were passed in connection with the Klan because the Klan would attack people strictly for racist reasons. The cop could come in to the federal trial and say, yeah, I choked that guy on purpose. Yeah. I shot that guy on purpose, but it had nothing to do with his race, and you have no evidence to prove it had anything to do with race. So the feds can do a lot by charging them, but they're going to do a little by proving it. Unless these cops are members of the Nazi Party or the KKK 
or you can show them using the word nigger and stuff like that, it's impossible to get a conviction on the federal level. On the state level, all you've got to show is the crime. On the federal level, you've got to show both the crime and the racist motivation. So it's going to be almost impossible to do anything on the federal level. Okay. Any closing remarks? Closing remarks is there's a lot that folks can do. We can pressure the Missouri Attorney General. We can pressure the New York Attorney General to forget about those damn indictments and simply file the information and bring those two cops to justice. That's the first thing we can do. The second thing we can do is support the types of groups that are organizing effectively against police brutality. Here in Philadelphia, we've got a local group, but we're branching out to get chapters outside of Philly, throughout Pennsylvania, and outside Pennsylvania throughout the entire country. That group is called F the Police, and F the Police does not stand for what people think it stands for, or maybe it does. But in our case, F the Police stands for Film the Police, and Film the Police is a group that's designed to monitor police misconduct and to have them not only sued in civil court, but prosecuted in criminal court. And this F the Police group, we have a Facebook page where folks can reach us 24-7 at our local Philadelphia number, which is 785. That's 215-552-8785. Or because this F the Police group is a committee of the attack organization, ATAC, Avenging the Ancestors Coalition, that's the group that fought for the historic slave memorial. We're now fighting against police brutality, and that's why ATT&CK has this F the Police Committee. Folks can email us at attack at avengingtheancestors.com. That's A-T-A-C at avengingtheancestors.com. They can call us at 215-552-8785, or they can email us at A-T-A-C at AvengingTheAncestors.com, and we're coming up with a national type of approach to not only ending police brutality, but getting cops fired and locked up. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mr. Corp, for always coming on the show and helping us out and educating us. I know I receive a thorough education, and I appreciate everything that you've been doing in the community. And I and, and I appreciate you doing that. And, Leslie, if you don't mind, if I can announce to your listening audience when I'm on the radio so that they can tune in not only just in Philadelphia but worldwide. My show is called The Radio Courtroom. And on that Radio Courtroom show, we do exactly what Leslie and I did tonight. And locally in the Philadelphia area, you can hear The Radio Courtroom show on Wednesdays at noon and Sundays at noon at 900 a.m. WRD. That's 900 a.m. WRD. Or just check us out on the Internet. Same thing, 900 a.m. WRD.com. So whether it's the radio or the Internet, we talk about this kind of stuff. And, Leslie, anytime something comes up and you want me back on, let me know, and I'll be happy to be on your show because you do great work enlightening our community. Thank you so much, Mr. Court, and enjoy your evening. Thank you. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. 
Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.